by his shirt collar. And about that time, the man next door uh, came walking out of his garage and he said, Professor, don't you remember, you must love the child. And the professor yelled back furiously, he said, I love him in the abstract, but not in the concrete. <laughs> now, I like that because that's, that's true far too often of most of us. And it's true in my life far too often. I know that the Bible calls upon me uh, to love other people. I know that. I know that in the abstract, but in the concrete, in dealing with difficult situations and irritating people, it's easy uh, to get to the end of our love very quickly. We love people in the abstract, but we're not very good often at loving people in the concrete. I uh, was reading a book this week, and I ran across a, a quote by Phil Riken. It's a very transparent statement, but it really resonated with me, and I think it will resonate with you as well. He said this, there's nothing I need more in my life than the love of Jesus. I need more of his love for my wife, the woman God has called me to serve until death. I need more of his love for my children and the rest of my extended family. I need more of his love for the church, including the spiritual brothers and sisters it's sometimes hard for me to love. I need more of his love for my neighbors who still need to hear the gospel and for all the lost and the lonely people who are close to the heart of God, even when they're far from my thoughts. Everywhere I go and in every relationship I have in life, I need more of the love of Jesus. And all I could say when I finished reading that is, so do I. And I, I think you would all agree, so do all of us here this morning. We desperately need this today. And I think we sense we need it even more today because our culture today is getting more callous and cold all the time. Our culture today is, is filled with hatred and, and with uh, hostility. Uh, that's the climate that we, we kind of live in today. We all sense that. Uh, we live in, in a love-scarred world. And I think compounding a lot of that today in our culture is the reality that the personal is becoming more virtual and technological all the time. You know, Facebook and Instagram and followers on Twitter and all of that, you can have hundreds of followers and friends on uh, these various uh, uh, internet and, and website connections, but not really have any real friends that you love. I was reading an article this week and a man said people go to Starbucks or they go to a coffee shop and I love this. He says, it's where people go to be alone together. And that's kind of true, isn't it? People go there to be alone together. Just looking at a screen and, and they're communicating, but not personally. It's virtual and technological. And I think that is increasing people's isolation today. Love is be love's becoming kind of a more virtual and a technological thing. And so in this environment, I think it's incumbent upon us as God's people to be more intentional and to be more intense in our love for one another. The one thing that the church should be great at is love. It's the one thing we ought to be great at. We ought to be better at it uh, than anybody else. We ought to have a, a deep sense of community and connection in the church. In fact, that's our, our third of our four core values here at Faith Bible Church. We want people to believe the gospel, to grow in Christ, and we want them to connect in meaningful ways with one another. Now, the church ought to be a place filled with real people and real, loving, lasting relationships. And that's what our text is about here this morning. Now, I've titled this message this morning, The Best of My Love. Let me read these verses for us. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 22 to 25. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. 
For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. So reads uh, God's word. The core of this passage I just read, the center of it, the center thought is we're to love one another. That's really what this passage is about. Everything around that central command describes various aspects of it. The main thought in this passage is that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ must love one another because we've been born again through the imperishable seed of the Word of God. You and I as Christians are to love one another because we've been born again through the imperishable seed of God's Word. Now, let me catch us up to where we are in this letter. I know I've done this several times if you've been with us, but the first 12 verses of 1 Peter are focused on our salvation. They're focused on what God has done in saving us. Starts out talking about the source of our salvation, the security of it, uh, the strength of it, the splendor of it. So the foundation that he builds at the beginning is the, the bedrock of our salvation. But then in verse 13, if you'll remember, there's a, a dramatic uh, shift in the action. He says, therefore, and so now um, he's going to move from what is to what ought to be, if you will. In other words, the life that should result from our salvation. And in verses 13 to 21 that we've looked at the last few weeks, he focuses on our practical life in, in the vertical in relationship to God and really tells us three things. We're to have our hope in God, we're to be holy as God is holy, and we're to honor God or be reverent. So those are the three main commands in that vertical relationship with God. But in verse 22 now, he turns from the vertical to the horizontal dimension of living out our salvation. He turns from the vertical to the horizontal, from the Godward, if you will, to uh, the manward. And so I've got three simple points this morning to take us through these verses. I want to look at the command to love one another the characteristics of the love we're to have, and then the cause of that love. What produces it in our lives? So we start with the command here in verse 22, and uh, verses 22 and 23 are one long sentence in Greek. But there's a main verb, and it's right there and near the end of the verb, and that is to, to fervently love one another. But really, it's just that word love. It's an imperative or a command, and everything else around these verses really focuses in on that one command. So love is the lifetime assignment for us as believers. Uh, The central focus here is on our love for one another as believers. Now, it's broader than that, and I'm going to make a broader application this morning in our marriages, our families, our work. But in this passage, it's love one another, which looks at love for believers for one another in the fellowship of God's people. Now, that presupposes that you know people here well enough to love them, right? If you don't know somebody, if you don't ever spend any time, it's difficult to show love towards them. So this presupposes that we're together, that we gather together on Sundays regularly, and that there's people in this church and this fellowship that you know and that you spend time with and that experience your love and and you experience uh, their love. Now, when he mentions love here, he, he starts out and says, that they could be purified with a sincere love of the brethren. 
Uh, that's the Greek word uh, phileo. We get the word, the word Philadelphia, brotherly love, comes from this. And uh, that's uh, uh, the love of kind of a friendship kind of love. But noticing he moves from that, and then he says, fervently love one another. And here it's agape love. It's agapao. And most of you know agape love is a willingness to sacrifice of yourself for the highest good of another person with nothing in return. That's what agape love is. It's an act of the will. It's to work for the highest good for another person at the expense of yourself. The sacrifice of yourself for someone else's highest good. There was a young lady one time, she asked her uh, boyfriend, she said, do you love me? And uh, he said, of course I love you. And she said, well, would you die for me? And he thought for a minute and he said, no. He says, mine is an undying love. <laughs> now, too many of us have an undying love, don't we? I mean, we, we're not willing to die to self to really serve other people. We, we say we love others, but when it really gets down to it, and I really have to sacrifice of myself, our love reaches its limits. You and I need to ask ourselves, what does this kind of love really look like in daily life? Now, everybody here is familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. What you may not know is that all the words there in that chapter that refer to love are all verbs. They're all action that we take. Uh, there's two positives there in that chapter. There's eight negatives. So a lot of it is the things we don't do. And then there's four means by which it expresses itself. Now we hear that passage so often, sometimes it can just become a little rote to us. So I want to read a, a paraphrase of this that I think might be helpful. It says, love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. That's a description of what the love in your life and the love in my life should look like on a daily basis. And again, it's verbs, it's action, it's things that we do or that we don't do uh, for one another. Um, Averill Harriman was uh, a, a, an advisor to four presidents. He was finally appointed the ambassador to France. And after he was appointed as ambassador to France, a reporter asked him one day, how is your French? And he said, oh, he says, my French is excellent except for the verbs. <laughs> I like that. But verbs are the key to language, right? And verbs are the key to love. And so we should ask ourselves this morning, how are my verbs doing uh, with love? It, it's not here in this passage, put up with one another or tolerate one another, which is what we sometimes do with people in the church that are different than us or irritate us or rub us the wrong way. He doesn't say just put up with each other or tolerate each other. Love one another. And this love isn't passive or restrained. It's a powerful, aggressive, positive force that serves and affirms and cares and persists and gives of itself. It's kind of common today, it's somewhat in, in vogue in some places to make the statement, I love Jesus, but not the church. Now, I know when people say that, they mean maybe some institution or organization, but when you read the New Testament, the church is the people. That's what the church is. Church is not a building or an institution or an organization. The church is the people. 
And you and I are called upon to love the church because the church is God's people that we gather together here with every week. We're to love one another, and again, we're to love the people that, that irritate us, that, that rub us the wrong way. It's, it's true in our families, but it's even more true in the family of God um, as we gather together. There's the old poem I love. You know, it says, to live above with saints we love, oh yes, that will be glory, and to live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. And there we wax eloquent about our love, but when it really gets down to the concrete of loving one another, in daily life, that's where the rub comes in. The, uh, the fourth century theologian, Jerome, uh, tells a great story about the apostle John. When he was getting near the end of his life, John lived in and around Ephesus. There were lots of house churches there. And he was frail and weak and he couldn't walk. So, so some men, people were taking care of him and they would take him and carry him to one of the different house churches in the area of Ephesus every week. And as he would, would come into the church, they would always want to, to hear a word from, from the great apostle, the last living apostle. So they always ask him for a sermon. And uh, his sermon always consisted of just five words. It was just a five-word sermon. Oh, that you all were so lucky, right? But his five-word sermon every week was, little children love one another. That's what he would say every week, little children love one another. This went on week after week, month after month, and finally one of the men became weary of this, and he said, Master, why do you always say this? And John replied, because it is the Lord's command, and if this only is done, it's enough. You think about that. If we love one another, really, in many ways, that's enough. And that's the command here. That's this simple yet sublime command for us, love one another. Now, the second emphasis in this passage is on the character of this love. What are the characteristics of this love that you and I should have for one another? There's three of them here that are highlighted. The first one is our love is to be sincere, a sincere love of the brethren. That means unhypocritical. It's not phony. I mean, it's not just for appearance. It's not just a, a pretend uh, kind of love. We really love people. As Paul says in Romans 12, 10, our love is to be without hypocrisy. Now, there's nothing worse than fake love, and we don't want to have the kind of love that we just turn on on Sunday morning for an hour or so and kind of tolerate everybody, and then we leave. We want a love that's a real, sincere love. Our love for one another must be sincere. It's not fake or pretend. It's like uh, the lady who broke up with her boyfriend, and then she wrote him this letter. Dearest Jimmy, no words could ever express the great unhappiness I've felt since breaking our engagement. Please say you'll take me back. No one could ever take your place in my heart, so please forgive me. I love you, I love you, I love you. Yours forever, Marie. P.S., and congratulations on winning the lottery. <laughs> Now, that's a shallow love, right? It's a sham kind of love. What we want with one another is a sincere love, a real love, a true love, a real love that's powerful and that's encouraging, that heals one another, that builds up one another. We need this kind of sincere love of the brethren. Now, notice the third thing here is this love is a fervent love. Love one another fervently. This word was used in the Greek of, of stretching and straining a muscle to the limit, to go all out. In other words, it's, it's wholehearted with all that you have. You're, you're all in, basically. 
And it's saying here, our love for one another is not to be weak in its strength or to just be minimal in its quality. This is to be an all-out straining love for one another. It's to be deep and to be intense. I was uh, studying this passage this week, and uh, I went down to uh, this little neighborhood uh, uh, area that we have, a little clubhouse. There's a small little workout area there, and a lot, most of the time when I go down, there's nobody there, so I enjoy just kind of being there by myself. And I was uh, doing some uh, bench press, and I was on my last set, and uh, I was doing the last rep. I was doing the 10th rep, and uh, I won't tell you how much weight it was. It'd be embarrassing. But anyway, I was straining with all I had. And I, I don't put collars on the end of the bar when I'm by myself, so if something happens, you can dump the weight off. It's not a fun thing to do, but if you're desperate, you can do that. But I was there, and I, I, I had nine, and I thought I could get one more. And I mean, half, about halfway up, I mean, I thought I was doomed. I mean, I was straining. And that last half right there probably took about a minute uh, to get up. And I was straining every fiber of my being and shaking to get that out. And I went back that night and was reading this passage again and thinking about it. And it says, our, we're, we're to love one another fervently. I mean, like straining every fiber and every muscle that you have. I mean, I was, I was red-faced and just shaking and straining with all that I had. And I asked myself then, is that what my love looks like? Does my love look like that, you know, 10th rep on a bench when, you, when you've totally given out and failed? Is that the kind of love we have? Is our love for one another fervent or is it flabby? How fervent is your love in your marriage, at your home? And what act of your will do you, do you show to your children or to your parents or to the people in your ABF or to other people just here at the church? What is the limit of your love and my love? That's a good question to ask ourselves because we say that we love one another and we spend time with one another, but when it gets messy and it's going to take some of my time or some of my money or it's going to take some of my convenience away from me, am I willing to serve and to help and to fervently love one another? In fact, if we're not willing to do that, it's not fervent love. It's really not love at all. So how much capacity do you and I have? Really, we have endless capacity because Galatians 5 tells us if we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit, that the fruit of the Spirit is love that He'll produce in and through us if we'll yield ourselves uh, to His control. Well, the third trait here of this love is it's from the heart. Notice it's not superficial or mechanical. We're to treasure our brothers and sisters in our hearts, not just when we see each other face to face. We're to keep one another in our hearts and in our prayers all the time. Now, we can't do that with everybody here. But are there, are there believers that you know that they're in your heart during the week, you're praying for them? You know that they're struggling with cancer or, or they've lost their job or there's some difficulty they're facing in life. We're to keep one another in our hearts and our prayers, to think regularly, kindly, and compassionately and prayerfully of one another. Not allowing our, our hearts to grow cold and disinterested in others. Look, no one in your life and my life should ever be love-starved. No one should be. No one in your life and my life that we know well should ever be love-starved. They should sense uh, that, th that they're with us uh, and that they're loved and they're sincerely and fervently loved from the heart. We need to support each other in, in all the areas of life. Someone may be going through the devastation of divorce, and they need help and encouragement from God's family. Uh, someone may have lost a loved one, and uh, they're grieving, and they need someone to come and, and help them walk through the valley of that grief. There may be someone who's struggling with, uh, wrestling with some kind of addiction. 
And they need somebody to come alongside them and to help them and encourage them. You and I need to be a refuge of care and encouragement that provides this fervent love from the heart for one another, whatever we're going through in life and the difficulties and the struggles of life. Look, I want people to love me this way, don't you? I want people to sincerely and fervently and from the heart love me in spite of my frailties and my mistakes and all the weaknesses in my life. And so if we want other people to love us like that, then may God help us to graciously and generously give this kind of love uh, to one another. Again, we can't do it for everybody here in all of these concrete ways, but we can do it for somebody or somebody's. I love a story I read years ago about uh, back in 1773, there was a young pastor of a church in Waynesgate, England. His name was John Fawcett. His wife's name was Mary. And he was a very uh, gifted young man, a great preacher, a great writer. And those skills brought uh, the attention of some large churches in London. And he got the opportunity to, to go and be the pastor of an influential church in London, and he accepted it. When the wagons were all loaded down with their few belongings from this, this country church they were at, the, the people gathered there for a tearful farewell for John and Mary Fawcett. And during the goodbyes, Mary Fawcett turned to her husband, John, and she said, John, I cannot bear to leave. And he said, neither can I. We'll remain here with our people. And they unloaded the wagons, and John Fawcett spent his entire 54-year ministry with those people there in Waynesgate. And out of that experience, he wrote that beautiful hymn, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. Many of you know that. If you don't, you can go look it up this week. Blessed Be the Tie That Binds Our Hearts in Christian Love. Those are people that loved the people of God deeply. So the command for you and me, it's simple. We all know it. It's to love one another. Uh, the character of this love, it's to be a sincere, fervent, from the heart kind of love. And then the cause of this love is stated for us uh, here in verse 23 and also back up in verse 22. Peter's clear here that there's a prerequisite for this kind of love. Something has to happen to you for this kind of love to be present in your life. And the prerequisite to have this kind of love is not just turning over a new leaf in life, but it's receiving a new life. It's not just undergoing a reformation, but it's undergoing regeneration. You have to be born again. Because notice the connection between verse 22 and 23. He says, fervently love one another from the heart. And the first word in verse 23 is for, or literally because. Because you have been born again. It's being born again that gives us the capacity and the enablement to love like this. And when he says you've been born again, in the Greek it's in the perfect tense. So it means it's something that happened in the past, but it has ongoing results. It continues. So these are people who've been born again at some time in the past, but it's still true in their lives. Now, when you hear the word uh, born again, some synonyms for that are new birth, Sometimes they'll talk about, you know, you need a new birth. Or the theological term for it is regeneration. In fact, uh, back in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, he says to these people that he's writing to, you have, uh, God has caused you by His great mercy to be born again to a living hope. 
And of course, Peter here is reflecting the words of Jesus back in John 3 when Jesus had that encounter with Nicodemus and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see of the kingdom of God. And so regeneration or the new birth or being born again is the creation of life in union with Christ inside of us. It's the impartation of divine life. The only way to enter God's family is through a birth, just as the only way to enter your family, your human family, uh, was through physical birth. When you were born physically of your parents, you received the life they could give you, physical life. When you're born into God's family, you receive the life God can give, which is spiritual life or eternal life. Now, you and I don't birth ourselves physically, right? We don't conceive ourselves, and we don't birth ourselves. Someone else does it for us. And it's the same thing with spiritual birth. In fact, I just read a moment ago, 1 Peter 1.3, where he says there that uh, according to his great mercy, God has caused you to be born again to a living hope. We don't conceive and birth ourselves naturally. We don't conceive and birth ourselves spiritually. God brings us to life. God makes it happen. It's His work. And He births us uh, by His grace. So the new birth is something that's done to us, not something that's done by us. And the reason we need to be born again is that we're dead in trespasses and sins, according to Scripture. We don't have life. That's why we can't make it happen. But God comes and breathes His life into us and makes us spiritually alive. That's what the new birth is. That's what it means to be born again. Now notice at the beginning of verse 22, this new birth brings spiritual cleansing. So if you have your Bible open there, and I hope you do, the end of verse 22 is telling us to love one another, but it's bracketed by two statements telling us we've been purified and you've been born again. Those are basically parallel statements because when you're born again, one of the results of being born again is God purifies and He cleanses us. He says, you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. So this is what happens when we're born again. And notice he says, it happens in obedience to the truth. In obedience to the truth means, um, the obedience to the truth is a right response to the truth. And the right response to the truth is to believe it, to put your trust in it. So when he says in obedience to the truth, it means to put our faith in the truth or to respond rightly to the truth, which is to trust in it. And when it says here that you have purified your souls, it doesn't mean that we purify ourselves because obviously God's action is at work underneath our action. He brings us to life so that we can believe so that we then experience this cleansing or this purification. But God purifies us when we're born again. I love uh, Titus 3.5. It's one of the great verses in the Bible, good verse to memorize. I love those first words, He saved us. He saved us. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy. And then it says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Spirit. One of the things that happens when we're regenerated is God washes us. He cleanses us. 
In fact, if you go all the way back to John chapter 3, when Jesus uh, first talked about what it means to be born again, Jesus said you have to be born again of the water and the Spirit. And we all know what the Spirit is. That's the Holy Spirit. But there's a lot of different views on what the water is. But if you go back to Ezekiel 36 and verse 24, he links there putting a new heart in his people with with cleansing and, and washing clean. So I think being born of the water and the Spirit means that the Spirit comes and and we're born again and we experience through that a washing and a cleansing uh, from our sins. So, So the main point though here in this passage is it's the new birth that brings the capacity to love as God loves. There's a book this week that I'd read before partly, but I reread it this week by John Piper. It's a whole book on regeneration and what that means, being born again. And it's called Finally Alive. And he captures this beautifully in one place when he says this, the new birth is the act of the Holy Spirit connecting our dead selfish hearts with God's living, loving heart so that his life becomes our life and his love becomes our love. That's beautiful. God connects his life and his love to our dead, selfish hearts. So when we're born again, his life becomes my life and his love becomes my love because God is love. God's nature is love. So when we're born into God's family, we love uh, like God loves. Now, one final thought here this morning, the, the source of this regeneration and cleansing, you'll notice the end of verse 23, is through the living and enduring Word of God. The Word of God here is spoken of as a, a seed that's not perishable, but imperishable. It's the imperishable seed of the Word of God through which God gives us life. Now, a, a seed here represents the source of life. Everything that comes to life in the created order ultimately begins with a seed. And Christ doesn't use perishable seed to bring about this new birth, but the imperishable seed of the Word of God. And I think here primarily it's looking at the gospel. Notice he mentions in verse 22, you obeyed the truth. That would be the message of the gospel. Then he mentions the Word of God in verse 23. Then the end of verse 25, this is the Word that was preached to you, that message of the gospel. So the seed that God uses to bring about the new birth in our lives is the seed, this imperishable seed of uh, the Word of God. In fact, uh, turn back just a couple pages to James chapter 1. There's a a powerful verse here that really reflects the same teaching Uh, that we have here. I love this verse. James says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. This is birthing language again. Notice it's not in the exercise of my will. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So God brings us forth. He births us And the seed that he uses, the instrument that he uses, is the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. The gospel is God's instrument to bring life to dead sinners. There's profound implications of this for you and me in our evangelism. 
The power to bring salvation is in the Word of God. It's not in us. It's not in our eloquence. It's not in our ability. No person is ever saved apart from the instrumentality of the incorruptible, imperishable seed of the Word of God. That's what we're to give people, the message of the gospel, the good news. That's the seed God uses. And he says here it's living and enduring it's living and that it has the power to awaken. It's, it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. I mean, it's enduring. That means abiding or permanent. You think about down through the, the, the centuries, through the millennia, how people have tried to get rid of the Word of God. They're still trying today. In fact, I'd say they're trying more strenuously than ever before. I saw a picture once years ago, and it, it pictures the Word of God like an anvil. And lying around this anvil are all these broken hammers. And it pictures all the people down through the centuries and the millennia who've beat on the Word of God to try to change it or to try to destroy it. And just broken hammers lying everywhere. And the anvil, the Word of God, stands secure. God says, look, my Word's never going to change. And to confirm this point, he quotes from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. All, gla- all grass here, or all the flesh, speaks of all flesh, all animals, human, all of it. And it's interesting, when, when Isaiah wrote this, he was prophesying and looking ahead to the captivity of Judah in the time of Babylon and the great glory of the kingdom of Babylon, and it all faded away. He wanted him to know it's not a permanent kingdom, only God's kingdom is unshakable. And as Peter is writing this to his readers in the first century, the glory of Rome is everywhere. And I know many of you have been there, but I've been to Rome, and you walk around, there's a lot of ruins everywhere, right? The Roman Empire has fallen. Imperial Rome uh, fell into dust. But he's saying here, the word of God abides forever. There's a story about uh, from World War II in the city of Warsaw, when, was, when the, the, the city of Warsaw downtown was bombed, all the cities on the main street were destroyed except for one skeletal structure that remained. And that badly damaged structure was uh, the Polish headquarters of the British and Foreign Bible Society. And even that structure was skeletal, but it was the only one there. But it, the one wall that was standing, you could see from the street. And on that wall were written the words, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. God leaves that one wall standing to be a testimony to the fact that though all else may crumble, uh, the Word of God will endure and will abide forever. So the Word of God abides forever, and we've been born again of the imperishable seed of the Word of God, so it means we will abide forever as well. And so the main point of this is, since you've been born again by this imperishable seed into an eternal fellowship, into an eternal family with an enduring life, we're to have an enduring love for one another. To again, love one another fervently from the heart. The most important question each one of us need to answer here this morning is, have we been born again? Again, that, that word's been thrown around in our culture for a lot of years, and I know there's a lot of misconception about it, but you have to be born again to see heaven. Jesus said, except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. And again, the new birth, all it is, is it's receiving life from God. It's being birthed into God's family through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
So if you've, never, if you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, that's what you need to do this morning. Believe in Him. We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. Take Him and believe in Him to be your Savior. When, they, when you do that, you, you, you're brought into the family of God. And you become a member of His family and you receive His life and His love. And then the next question, I want all of you to go and think about this. This is your assignment this week, to ask yourself how sincere and how fervent and how from the heart is the love that I have for my spouse, for my children, for my parents, for my extended family, for the people I work with, but primarily in this application here as well for the people in this church that God's, God's put you into contact with. Do we have that kind of love for one another? I, I know many of you have heard me mention Amy Carmichael, one of my favorite uh, people to read. Her poetry is beautiful. But she was a woman who knew what it meant to love fervently from the heart. She served the Lord. She was from Northern Ireland, from Belfast. Um, she served the Lord for 55 years in India, never came home on a furlough. She had a, a bad fall and spent the last two decades of her life basically bedridden. But she was in, in India delivering young girls, a lot of her ministry was delivering them from, from sexual slavery. And her ministry and her life was fervent and it was costly because so much of her life was spent in deep suffering. And I, I've always greatly admired her life, but there's one poem that she wrote, and I want us to make this our prayer really this morning as we leave. And the name of the poem is Make Me a True Lover. She wrote this, Mender of broken reeds, O patient lover, tis love my brother needs. Make me a lover. That this poor reed may be mended and tuned for thee, O Lord of even me, make a true lover. Kindler of smoking flax, O fervent lover, give what thy servant lacks, make me a lover. That this poor flax may be quickened aflame for thee, O Lord of even me, make a true lover. Let's pray together. Well, Father, that's our prayer this morning, our heartfelt prayer, that you'll make even of us, of even sinful, selfish people like us, that you'll make a true lover. Father, help us to die to self so that other people around us can live. Give us a servant's heart, a sacrificial spirit, a readiness to go down so that other people can go up. And Father, we thank you for that great gift of salvation. That you've given us life. You've washed away our sins and you've cleansed us. Father, now we have the joy to come to the Lord's Supper, to remember our Savior who loved us so that we can love one another. We ask these things in His precious name. Amen.